Thanks for listening to the How Not to Think podcast. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, welcoming you to the show that considers topics like cognitive bias, binary thinking, stereotypes, all of which influence how we think. If you want to delve deeper into this topic, please check out my book, I Think, Therefore I'm Wrong, available at Amazon, and my author page there, Dr. Howard J. Rankin, where you'll find several other books of mine, and you can also check out my website at drhowardjrankin.com. Thank you. Today's guest on How Not to Think is Dr. Alan Broughton. She's the Director of Learning and Emotional Assessment at Mass General and also um, Track Director of the Child Psychology Training Program at Mass General and Harvard. She's also an Assistant Professor of Psychology at Harvard, and she's widely recognized as an expert in the field of pediatric neuropsychological and psychological assessment, particularly in the areas assessing learning disabilities and attentional disorders. Um, she is the author of some very acclaimed book, books, straight, straight Talk About Psychological Testing for Kids, The Child's Clinician Report Writing Handbook, and Finding the Right Mental Health Care for Your Child. So we have a genuine expert with us today, probably one of the leaders in the field. Thank you so much, Ellen for being with us today. I'm very happy to be here. Great, and it's great to have you. Thank you for your time. Um, so the first question is, how did you get to be doing what you are currently doing and obviously doing it very well? Well, I've always been interested in children and even from a young age. And I came through psychology, into psychology from sort of a backdoor because I was a special education major in college many years ago. And I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. And I wanted desperately to be a psychologist, but who was a psychologist? I, we, I didn't even know any psychologists working, uh, growing up in Wisconsin. And so I went into special education, which is actually a very good preparation for being a child psychologist. And I worked for a few years in the school before going back into uh, into a clinical psychology program. And my first area of interest and in research was in ADHD. And part of that was because that's what my advisor did. But I was really interested in ADHD and empathy. And then after graduate school, did an internship and in, in postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard. And there I specialized in clinical neuropsychology, which is really just testing kids about learning issues, things like autism, lots of kids with ADHD. And what I, what I started to observe as I was doing this was there were a certain number of kids who didn't really make it as well as we would have expected them to, which led to one of my other books, which um, you didn't mention, but I will mention here, which is Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. And it was a, a book about kids who are slow at processing information. And so it's, it, 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 I started to observe kids who, they might've had ADHD. And at one time we thought all kids were sort of slow at processing had ADHD. And then I found though that there were also kids with dyslexia or kids with anxiety that the one thread they had 
that seemed to be holding them back was this slower processing speed. So that sort of taken over the last few years of my research and my clinical interests. And it relates a lot to how kids who are sort of slow thinkers, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, kids who just sort of take a lot of time to chew on one topic for a long time are a bad match for what we are living in today. And then add on the last two years of the pandemic, it's been really hard for lots of kids to keep up. So those are, you know, that that interest of, of how the brain processes information, along with how in our culture, fast processing equates to smart people has been my sort of area of, of interest. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's fascinating. And of course, even slow processes bring something to the table too. Um, perhaps a depth of thought or a different, many different ways of perceiving things. And, and clearly we're going to talk about this, but in my clinical experience, that absolutely is true. And, and sometimes that slow processing is anxiety. Um, Absolutely. I remember this one case, this kid was referred to me. Um, he'd been diagnosed as mentally handicapped. It's clear to me that he wasn't. But I, you know, he failed all the tests and what have you. And I said, when's your birthday? And he couldn't answer me. I know, I know he knew when his birthday was, but it was seemed to me that he was so thinking about all the consequences of asking this, answering this question that he wouldn't do it. That didn't make him dumb or stupid. Um, it just, that's the way he was. And it was a great example to me of how this different speed of processing manifests itself in different ways. Absolutely. And anxiety is one of those things that we have found to be very closely related to slow processing speed. And part of it is that there is a continuous relationship with that. All of us slow down when we're anxious. That's mm -hmm. a, an adaptive functioning. There's something mm -hmm. in the environment and we need to take stock of what's there as well as get ready to run. But, um, but the kids who have anxiety and slow processing speed, one thing just, you know, they get anxious they get slower, then they get more anxious. So in that situation with that, that you just described, that's probably what was happening. It's mm -hmm. like, what's the right answer here? Is he asking for something more? And right. then it's, it just, it just multiplies. Yeah. Right, right. Too much thinking, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, too yeah. much thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, and, and I'd be interested in your take on the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder and HDHD. I had experience, which I'll tell you about shortly, but what's your view on that, the use of that diagnosis and the complexity of it that sometimes isn't conveyed? I think that there's, you know, there's data that shows that it's underdiagnosed, um, especially in girls, that we don't always pick up on ADHD in girls. At the same time, it's far overused and all of us for, I mean, almost everybody would say, oh, I'm a little bit ADHD. And people forget that when we're talking about ADHD, we're really talking about a clinical syndrome that has to interfere significantly with what's happening in our lives. And so we all experience inattention. We all are hyperactive. Sometimes we're all depressed and or experience feelings of depression 
but we've gotten a little bit away from thinking about clinical diagnoses as opposed to feelings and normal experiences in life. So ADHD is is one of those. Um, It's got to really impair you. But here's the other issue with it is that kids especially are being asked to do far more than they are capable of developmentally. And I hear very frequently curriculums in kindergarten for executive function skills. It's crazy. Like, why do, why do, uh, why does a five-year-old need to be organized? They're, they are depending on adults to organize their lives so they can learn all those other things like social skills and how to write and uh, all of those things. So we've turned this all around. And so everybody's sort of feeling like their child has executive function problems. Well, of course they do. Six-year-olds are not supposed to be organized. They're not supposed to be able to tell a story coherently. So so I think it's, it's such a complicated issue. But at the root, I think is that we've sort of just blurred the lines between what is a psychiatric disorder and what is part of just living. Absolutely. And we, we could look at any diagnosis and use of the words and say the same thing. You know, uh, people do not get it. They understand some of the symptoms. Oh, I'm a bit ADHD. Well, no, you can't be a bit ADHD. Exactly. Either you meet the criteria or you don't. Right. And and this is, you know, one of the problems of the medicalization of so many natural, normal behaviors, right? Um, And... You know, I experienced this. I was doing a project in the uh, Independence Missouri school system using um, some brain mapping to look at kids who had problems uh, in elementary school. And I went into this thinking, well, ADHD is way overdiagnosed, you know. And what I found, this was a pretty low SES district, mm-hmm. a lot of single parents, even grandparents as, as guardians, and it was underdiagnosed, yes. not overdiagnosed. Yeah. You know, the, the parents or the guardians didn't know, they didn't have time, they didn't have access. Um, and that was an eye-opener to me. Yes. Is it's- that, yeah, you can look at society and say, oh, gosh, it's way overdiagnosed. And it may be in certain sectors, but yeah. there are certain sectors where it is under diagnosed for sure. Exactly right. And one of the reasons why I became interested in processing speed too, in addition to the things I mentioned before, is that it used to be that a child with slow processing speed was just assumed to have ADHD inattentive subtype. And so uh, some of the referrals that I was getting was for ADHD and they didn't really meet the diagnostic criteria, but they had this very slow, you know, you talk to them and it took them a long time to come up with an answer. So they they were assumed to be inattentive. Similarly, a lot of my referrals for, for that group of students were coming from neurologists or even education you know, teachers mm. uh, looking at kids who were having trouble with social skills. And so they were saying, you know, this, I don't, I don't know, maybe this child is on the autism spectrum or at that time even Asperger's. And mm-hmm. I was finding that. No, they they just have this slower processing speed. It's just a it's just a difference in our way of cognitively interacting with the world. So is that a is is that a disorder we 
don't, that's not in you know, our diagnostic manual, but, but it might present as a disorder because it's disrupting their functioning significantly, but misdiagnosing someone as having ADHD when it's really slower processing speed or uh, autism spectrum, because it takes a quick processing to determine how somebody else is feeling. It's not just about not being able to empathize, but you these children may have tons of capacity to empathize, but it just takes them a few minutes to, to figure that out. And so that, so it's complicated that when we're talking about diagnoses, we're really just at the very beginning of these. And we are still trying to fit people into these strict categories when really these categories have much more fluidity to them than we realize. Yeah, that's an outstanding, outstanding point and so true and across the spectrum i mean we could say that about many things in the psychological field psychiatric field in terms of diagnosis these things have become so common in everyday language that they are not used appropriately you know oh you know i woke up three times in the night i must have sleep apnea no 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 the diagnosis is you have to wake up you know like five times in an hour to have that if you don't then it's not sleep apnea um and 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 so you see this everywhere but with children obviously it's particularly important because this what they're told then begins to influence how they think about themselves Absolutely. I'm going to say something that I hope is never taken out of context, but we've gotten so good in some sectors of our society at destigmatizing mental health that it's not a bad thing. Right. And, I mean, it should never be a bad thing, but it's, it's I, I should rephrase that, that some parents think it's actually a positive thing. They, they would prefer for their child to have a label of anxiety and to get special assistance rather than sort of changing the environment to make the child less anxious. And so it's, it's complicated, but I do find that, yeah, there's, there's this issue that, you know, it's, it's okay to, to have a significant, you know, to label somebody with a significant disability and children then do try start to integrate that into their personality structure. They're not yet, people with a fully formed personality. So this is, you know, starts to become who they are and that may or may not be correct. Right. Right. It may be sort of rather negative feedback for them in terms of, especially if they're, you know, slow processes because they're thinking too much, you know, exactly. (laughs) That person doesn't like me because now I've got, I've been labeled, I've got anxiety disorder Oh, I should be anxious. I mean, and so on. Yeah, no, yeah, it is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And also where they, um, yeah, it's like I should be anxious or I'm interpreting what is a normal event as me being anxious as opposed to, yeah, I feel sort of uncomfortable right now. That's okay. Most people would in this situation and move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. When you talk to parents about this, you know, and I'm sure you get a reaction across the spectrum from relief to defiance. Um, but but what are some of the things that you hear when you say, well, you know, I don't know that your kid really does have ADHD, not by the criteria, um, or he does by the criteria. 
is there such a thing as a typical reaction? Uh, oh, not really. I think my first, my first, the, the first thing that I would do with, with families like this is I always start with giving information by asking them as soon as I, I give it, does this fit for you? Does this seem right for you? And is this a surprise? And so that gives them the opportunity to sort of say, well, I really thought he had ADHD. And a lot of times the child has something else. It's right. anxiety or it's ADHD just has become one of those things that seems very easy because everybody thinks a pill can help us solve that. And the medications are not as you know, complex in terms of how they interact in the body and the brain as antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. So parents really are desperate. So what I try to do in those situations is empathize with whatever that is that doesn't fit for them. And once in a while, I can be wrong. Once in a while, you know, I, I, maybe they do have ADHD and there was a piece that was missing that in our discussions, I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but when it does, that's important too. But I'll also say too, there's good news and bad news. The good news is your child doesn't need, you know, a mm -hmm. discrete disorder. The bad news is that your child doesn't need a discrete disorder. And it's going to be more complicated actually to figure out how to help them. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the pivotal clinical moments for me uh, while I was doing this trial with uh, QEG brain mapping in the school district um, was, um, you know, I would talk with the parents and show them the results. And one guy came in and said, look, I know my son does not have ADHD. I know his mom, they were recently divorced, nasty divorce. I know his mom thinks he does, but that's baloney. That's just her being dramatic. He's fine. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, let me show you the brain map here. And the QEG brain map, one of the things that research has shown is there is a particular pattern of brainwave activity that is really closely correlated with an ADHD diagnosis. So I said, well, that's interesting. Let me show you. And this kid had like the perfect example of that. And the guy stopped and then he started to cry. Yeah. And then he said, okay, I'll make an appointment. Um, you know, because of this, you know, the confusion, as you were, between diagnosis and symptoms and what have you, you know, people are going to believe what they want to believe. And clearly, in yeah. this case, in a hostile divorce, he's not going to believe what his wife, ex-wife said, you know, and he needed to be shown that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just see that so, so valuable. I do. Too. I, I Two things there. One is that's a very common situation for me, too, where one parent feels they, and sometimes they're going through a divorce. Sometimes they're not. <laughs> I find that sometimes it's our own anxiety or perhaps that parent went through the same thing him or herself. So there's tenderness there in terms of seeing that in their child because they struggle themselves. And then the importance of data, though. So for me, as a neuropsychologist, I've given all these tests, and almost always there are things that you can pinpoint and say your child is functioning quite well in these situations, in these areas or arenas. And this part of the evaluation and processing speed, maybe working memory, 
other kinds of executive functioning. There, look at this discrepancy between these two things. And it really, data always helps. And I also feel like parents are very worried that they're just going to go into someone's office. This happens all the time. They visit their pediatrician or a psychiatrist. And in 20 minutes, they've given them a prescription. That is not the way to practice medicine or psychology or psychiatry. And and, um, part of it is people are very busy. Professionals are busy and they want to treat as many kids as they can. But that's a frightening experience for a parent to to do that. And of course, they're unsure. Yeah, and the the, the importance um, of data, of appropriate data, is really critical because without that, it's oh well, you know, it's just your opinion. I, you know, right. the teacher said that, but that's just her opinion. You know, she can't deal with you know my kid in class. He's smarter than that. You know, and so you've got to be able to show, as I'm sure you do, and I'm sure that's a big part of some of the books you've written is how critical showing the data is yes as i say people will believe anything even when you show them the data sometimes but you gotta have something right to explain your position right Right. and i mean there are still people teachers even and parents who will say well i don't know what that is like that's just but um i sort of view that as a parent being part of it's part of a process that some are just at the beginning of this journey of being able to see their child for who they are. And even as adults in therapy, I mean, this this stuff takes a while and we can't always expect our results, our information to be immediately helpful as you described. But I do find that to be the case too, that sometimes parents are very moved when they see it in black and white, because it's sort of their, their, underlying maybe unconscious fears being revealed mm-hmm. right in yeah, front of their absolutely. eyes. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it obviously is important to get parents on the right page, ideally the same page too, because they're going to be the ones that are going to significantly influence what happens to that child, how that child develops in the light of the data showing slow processing yeah. or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and a good diagnosis does help us figure out the treatment. A good evaluation, good data helps us figure out where to go. And that's always where I try to move people towards that. Uh, that it's really, it's not about labeling or describing, or it's about, okay, we've got this information now where to go from here. Right. And that exactly. that can oftentimes help move out of that like discussion of. Right. Are you right? Are you wrong? Right. You know, we, we can all get on the same page where it's something you, you came into my office because something wasn't working. Now, where do we go? So, yeah, yeah. No, that denial. Absolutely. I'm sure is a big part of um, pediatric treatment and assessment, isn't it? Is, yeah, is to it get is. people on the same page because, yeah. Um, you know, not only is that going to create problems for the child, but just family communication it's it's not going to be good you don't need parents fighting over what you don't need a child to see parents fighting over what they think the child needs yes yes and then there's another layer too because kids grow up in a context of of the school environment a community environment it's it's all very hard for kids to have to integrate 
what they're hearing. And kids always know what's going on. If parents disagree, they always know. So. Yeah. And sometimes a bit of a vacuum. I mean, I remember talking to um, one of the uh, parents of one of these kids in the school and the school started elementary school started like 7 30 in the morning so the kid needed to be up by 6 30 should have been in bed by 7 30 and i said you know really it needs to be in bed by 7 30 and the woman said i don't get home from work till 10 o'clock oh wow yeah you know what do you do yeah <laughs> right right uh, <laughs> So, um, so there are there are all of those those factors, but obviously the professional job is to get the data, identify the problem, convey that in a way in which the caregivers, parents, buy into it and can at least agree on the di- the diagnosis and the steps moving forward. Yeah, yeah, and the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to is to empathize as opposed to teach. And we forget, I think that's just a great lesson in life. Like every time we're in a situation where we're like, but I, I know better. Like there, you know, there've been dozens of things over the last two years where there's been this dichotomy between information and people not believing it. And it's so hard to empathize, but that's the best place to start. Yep. Really critical. You know, I was 20 years into my career really as a behavior change specialist. And I realized nobody's ever given me a course or suggested I even take one or find one on communication. Yeah. Because it clear it appeared to me that that was really critical. Mm-hmm. Really critical. You could be the smartest doctor in the world, but if you can't influence people, that's a waste of waste of all your expertise. Yes. And and that communication is really important. And it's not about going head on and, you know, saying, well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. The data proves I'm right. That, I mean, all that's going to do is turn them off. Right? I know. I know. And there have been a lot of times over the last few years when I have done that incorrectly with family members or acquaintances. On, I, I don't want to get, you know, just where it's like, but but this will help. But this... And it's, yeah, but we're human too. Like we can't yeah. do that. You know, the, the other thing that you were saying about communication that came into my mind is that one of the first things I learned in graduate school from my first classes in, in counseling and like interviewing and counseling was I had a professor who said the first thing he thinks about when someone new comes into his office is what have they lost? Mm. And it's so true when anyone is feeling that kind of like way of overreacting, protecting, or come into our offices because they are seeking help. It's because they've lost something. And, you know, over the last few years, it's been a constant series of daily losses for all of us, which makes us all very, you know, wanting to, I don't know, be, be defensive or mm-hmm. act from a place that we're not used to acting from. So it, it's, an, it's an, something that I even have trouble thinking about. If someone is overreacting to something, it's oftentimes because they're dealing with something that they couldn't control or lost control over or literally lost. Right. Yeah. And control is the key word there. We all want control in our lives. 
bit of a delusion in some ways because there's mm -hmm. lots of things we can't control but we all want that we want that emotional comfort and that's what drives us that's what drives our thinking not rationality or logic um it's hey i want to feel i'm in control of this situation mm -hmm. and you know that's particularly relevant after loss um, yes yes yeah yeah as you say it could be loss of self-respect could be loss of a person yeah. could, any sort of loss is going to yeah. be painful yeah and i'm going to push people into that rather defensive position mm -hmm. yeah yeah tell us um, um, more about your books i mean obviously they're along this this line of really trying to understand and not you know put everything into convenient categories um but tell us more about your books so to take a step even backward from the books themselves i and and piggybacking on what you were saying about communication when i was in grad school i was in a case conference with a very well known pediatric neuropsychologist many years ago so many years ago and he was talk we were talking about something a case and that the teacher did not understand what this particular reading intervention was. And he said, how could she not know that? How could she not know that this, this is the, you know, what, whatever it was, I'm not going to get into details, but, but having come from an education background, I of mm. course knew how she didn't know it was because she didn't read the journal articles that he read. Like they, there was in the Venn diagram of what was going on in psychology and what was going on in education, there was no overlap. And I thought at that time, I really want to figure out a way how to make complex psychological concepts and bring them to the public. So my first book was on um, straight talk about psychological testing for kids, because I had at the very beginning of my career, lots of parents were like, what does these, what do these reports mean? What do these numbers mean? I don't know. So we tried to make that into a, a book that would be a handbook for them to help them decipher right. the report, know what to expect before, know what to expect after, what were their rights. And I've, com I've continued in that, in that route, um, helping, like one of the, the child clinicians report writing handbook is actually written for professionals on how to make reports easier, better, and this is much easier said than done. I'm sure if you took a look at this book, you'd say it's still pretty complicated because it is. And then um, I, in terms of how to find mental health care from your, for your child, that was also a book that I thought, all right, a lot of people are having difficulty figuring out what's cognitive behavioral therapy? What is play therapy? What does my child need? And then my last book really came out of the idea of this, I just saw these kids with this slow processing speed. I actually hadn't done the research on it yet, but I, but we started it as, but a lot of books are written like that. People mm -hmm. don't realize a lot of, a lot of psychologists write the book and are doing the research at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we did that. And that was my last um, book. And I have a new one coming out probably in the fall that is tentatively titled Bright Kids Who Just Couldn't Care Less. Mm. And it's about reaching those kids who are sort of unmotivated. And um, so, Great. yeah. 
Awesome. And um, presumably that we can find that. I'll put this in the show notes, but presumably those books are on Amazon and easily findable. Yes, yes. Excellent. Now, your last point raises the issue of how the education system uh, either contributes to the problems, manages the problems, identifies them, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a complex problem because we're dealing with you know, a, a big system and a way of teaching. But what are your thoughts on that? Oh, boy, I have lots of thoughts on this. As I'm sure you do, too. I do think the education, and I don't mean to bash the education system. I just take that at face value. But we have gotten so um, involved in outcomes and asking kids to do things before they're ready to do them. So some of these things we've talked about, like ADHD, you know, there's a fine line between, okay, having some symptoms and then meeting criteria. There is a situational component to that. And there are times when kids might not meet criteria for something like ADHD, but they're being asked to do too much in the educational system. And so those that sort of threshold symptoms become an actual disorder. So we are, I think, contribute at the educational system, what we're asking kids to do are, are contributing to that. Of course, it's, it's worse in uh, educational environments that are underfinanced, that don't have resources. But at the same time, I don't necessarily think that, that I've seen great teachers in the Boston public schools and really poor teachers in some of the better school systems around Boston. And so we can't make kind of blanket statements, but my, my biggest concerns are in asking kids to do what they're not capable of doing yet, not having a good perspective about development. Uh, a lot of teachers aren't well-trained still in reading, in the science of reading. And again, having started in education, I realized that like teachers don't really learn about the brain. And so when we come to them with this information that that you described in your own research, it's like, where is this coming from? Because they they don't link the brain. And again, generalizing too much here, it's the training. The training doesn't link brain science to education. That's got to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. In in many ways, we, we have a very outdated very outdated, almost Victorian education system that depends on certain skills, you know, like verbal memory. If you can remember things and, you know, recite them, then you're going to, oh, you're going to get a good grade. It doesn't mean you, you know, uh, and if you're great with your hands, forget it, you know. Uh, And I've seen that rather tragically, you know, kids who have some great skills, maybe artistic skills or, or, you know, manual skills, but, you know, they're just not into the typical verbal memory stuff, and they think of themselves as losers, you know, and they're yes. not, they're not. Yes, I think this brings me to another point that might be a little bit controversial, but 10 years ago and more, if I had a child with a learning disability or who was good with their hands like that, I still would have been full speed ahead, we can get that child into college. Mm-hmm. I have seen that fail so much. It's probably the biggest failure of my career is that I spent too much time getting kids into college and less or not enough time trying to figure out lots of options that fit with their goals, with their desires, 
with, and because I, I feel like we sort of have this in some ways idealistic or maybe even um, elitist idea that college is the way forward for everyone. And it's not, and it makes those kids feel like they're less than when really we are desperate for the kinds of skills they have. And we don't think broadly enough about how to transition into adulthood except for college. And we need, that needs to change tremendously. Yeah. And I see some of that happening. Actually, I do. Yeah. I see, you know, I've even got friends who've got high school age kids, you know, 15, 16, simply not interested in school. Just saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to get my, you know, GD and I'm going to go, you know, work here and work there. And, and honestly, that can be the basis of some fantastic experience uh, and and knowledge about yourself and knowledge about the things you want and you're cool at and all of that. You know, you don't know that at 18 or 19, no. typically. Most people do not know that, you know. And, you know, I, had a, I have a friend who went to a college uh, in your neck of the woods, but it was an unconventional one. It, it was all project-based, so there wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, really no grades, no typical exams. And when he applied to vet school, they turned him down. I said, uh-uh. you know, we don't know. We, I mean, you haven't gone through the conventional system. So he ended up, he did sort of auto mechanics. He did this, he did that. And then eventually he got into vet school, amazing that. And he said, those intermediate skills, like being an auto mechanic, really helped my surgical skills. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we, yeah, I think what you're describing, though, in your friends is that there's, we're trying to get away from that stigma of not going to college. They're really in certain sections of our society. If you have a child, I've had many parents say, if he doesn't go to college, what am I going to tell people? And of course, a lot of those kids wound up going to college and by the middle of their sophomore year were depressed, anxious. They had spent, the parents had spent the junior and senior years of, of high school miserable it's just not worth it. We need to spend more time talking to kids about what do you want? What are you right. good at? Right. What do you desire? How do we make that happen? And that right. that is vitally important and taking away the stigma. Oh, absolutely. And recognizing that over time, they may come around to that. I had a, a client yep. who went to college, just wasn't interested, you know, goofed off, left, you know, when three years, did a variety of things. He said, okay, now I'm ready. And went back yep. to college, did really well. Yeah, it's about, why do we assume that? This is the time for everybody. It's, it makes no sense. Yeah. No, it makes no sense at all. And it's, it's, it's just not mm-hmm. even, we know human development is sort of changing, that adulthood is starting later. And mm-hmm. that time in life is one that we have to rethink. And, and I, I think that, even earlier in education, parents are already thinking about that at sixth grade, seventh grade. And so it sets up these years where kids are just miserable. Parents are miserable. You know, some kids are just eager to get into college. Many are, Mm -hmm. and they should Mm -hmm. be encouraged completely. And I I also want to say that kids who don't have the advantages, who don't grow up in those sorts of homes or areas need to be encouraged to go to college, but we've got to be able to think about kids individually their goals, their strengths, their desires too. What is it that they that they want? 
and help them try those things out. Yeah, absolutely. And I went way back in the last millennium when I was in, uh, when I got into high school, like sixth grade, they're already dividing people. Oh, you're really in the arts. You're in the science and, you know, that's it. And, you know, science came along (laughs) and I was with a group of kids who really had apparently no interest in science. And I remember one time the teacher came in and trying to get us interested in geology. And he said, look, these rocks are 2000 years old. And spontaneously, I think four of us broke out into happy birthday to you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I really wasn't into science until I got into psychology. And then it meant something to me. Now I understood it. And I came to it. Oh, okay, now I get it, you know, but I was an an idiot in high school science class, you know, and, and that's okay, too, because kids are kids, I do feel like we're allowed to be idiots, (laughs) just using your word. (laughs) It was hard for me to even say that, but we we don't mean it in the same way that, uh, but truthfully, kids were allowed to mess up and then regroup by the time they reached adulthood. And we don't really allow kids to mess up that much anymore. Um, no. mm. it, it's yeah, it yeah. The consequences are significant. Uh, yet they're and yet yet they're messing up a lot. And because that's what kids do, <laughs> and they should be they should be doing that. Uh, but in the process, they're much more anxious and depressed. Yeah, and then the danger is then and that becomes sort of victimized. Oh, you poor yeah. victim, nobody understands you and what have you, which, yeah. you know, is also a horrible way to go. It's about, okay, let's see what are your skills and what are you, you know, not so good at and what's going to be important here, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the fact that you don't understand nuclear physics, well, we don't have to worry about that. You know, that's not a critical life skill. Right, right. Um, but, you know, here a thing. Yeah, there's so much that that needs to be done. And I recognize the difficulty in a sort of massive institution like education, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed because you're totally right. It ignores everything we know from neuroscience about how people learn. Yeah, yeah. And the great teachers are the ones who are always seeking, who are curious. And there are, I mean, one great teacher can overcome four poor ones seriously. Yep. yep. Uh, but we need we need more of them. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And interestingly enough, um, prior to doing this project, um, I met with the the director, school administrator, of the district. Um, had some connections at Yale, so I was in with some really smart people at Yale in a think tank. And I said to them, you know, often when I ask my clients who are in education, and that could be, you know, kindergarten through college, what their favorite subject is, they come back, a lot of them, with the same answer, but it's not a subject and it's not recess. What is it? And they didn't get it. And the answer very often was the subject taught by my favorite teacher. Yes. That connection is what motivates people. If you really relate to and like the person standing and telling you this stuff, you're going to listen. You're going to be engaged. It doesn't matter what the topic is, right? It comes back to that communication thing. 
again. You know, and I, you know, when I hear teachers say, oh, I don't know what's wrong with kids today. None, I told my kids this and none of them got it. Well, perhaps it's not the kids' fault. Right, right, hmm? right. Absolutely. And I think you're so right. There's, for example, kids with dyslexia have trouble learning a foreign language. I run across many kids with dyslexia in high school where I'll say, you know, we could get you a waiver for this because you, and they're like, but I love Spanish. It's hard, but it's always the teacher, always mm -hmm. the teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah. No, and again, so many things that are easy to identify. Um, and we realize that a lot of these are generalizations because there are many great teachers. Um, but we can identify things that could be improved in the system, no question yeah. about that, and really should be. It's a mindset yes. change. Yes. You know, how we... I think a lot of it has to do with, with the, the teaching of teachers, not really yeah. with teachers. No, no, they, no, I agree. Yeah. So it's got to start at the university level and with integrating neuroscience into Absolutely. education. Yeah, absolutely. So as we come regrettably close to closing, at least this session, we're probably going to have another one sometime. Um, if you, if there's a parent listening who is concerned about their child is a little confused, has, you know, gone online and read a whole variety of confusing things, what's your best advice for them? So, General advice is seek more information. Do not worry alone. There are a lot of options out there. And you can start, even though we've been talking about teachers, but teachers are wonderful sources of information. Right. I don't want anybody to think that teachers are not the place to go. It's the first place to go. You might have a teacher who's not understanding that might be part of the problem. Go to then other sources of information. A pediatrician is a good source to start with, a psychologist, neuropsychologist, um, and oftentimes a pediatrician is the person who can put you in touch with those people. But I think that getting more information is always the best thing. And that's oftentimes the thing that parents don't want to do when they're worried because they're afraid, well, what if I find out it's worse than it is? It, it won't be. And it, you, you will always feel better knowing more about your child. And you can get a free evaluation through your child's school system. So you can start there by saying, I'm requesting an, uh, an evaluation and uh, start with that. Right. And um, there's always the option of second opinion, right? Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. And of course, there's always the option of reading your books too, which hopefully would enlighten them as to what they can do and how to understand some of the reports they get back, right? Absolutely. I think there's a wealth of information. There's, there are a lot of things on the internet. Some of them aren't always perfect, but go to the places that are associated with universities and other, um, you know, authority figures in psychology and education. You can get a lot of information there. Yeah, and that's true. There is good information, but go to the trusted sources, um, yes. the universities, the medical schools, 
um, you know, not coach Joe from down the road. Right, right. He may have absolutely no background whatsoever in this. Um, but so again, I think that's I think that's really important. Um, and also re- go and research Ellen's books on Amazon. Tell us again what they all are. So the most recent one is Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, but there's also straight talk about psychological testing for kids, how to find mental health for your child. Those are the ones written for parents. Excellent. Excellent. And we could go on for a long time. We will probably resume again at some future point. That's when your new book comes out. Um, But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for what you do. I think it is providing light and clarity in what certainly potentially is a very murky field and impacts the development of kids, you know? Yes. Yes, definitely. So, So thank you so much. Thank you for having me.